Hi, I'm Mark Harrison. I'm a CEO, but more importantly, I'm a father, a husband, an athlete, a friend, and a big fan of Chris Waddell. And I'm pleased to be on his Living It podcast. Hi, I'm Chris Waddell. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold. Say yes to adventure. Say yes to living it. Welcome to Chris Waddell Living It, where we talk with experts in the experience of being human, those who've taken the risk to realize their dreams and live fully. I think you'll agree this guy that we have on today has done exactly that. We have Mark Harrison, who is a doctor, a global healthcare leader, actually won a contest, a March Madness kind of contest last year as the global healthcare leader, recognized for healthcare transformation and health equity advocacy. He's a pediatric critical care physician and is the former president and CEO of Intermountain Healthcare. Dr. Harrison has joined the venture capital firm General Catalyst to launch and lead a new business with the mission to deliver health and wellness collaboratively, compassionately, and courageously for all people. Now, there's that, but he is also a cancer patient in remission where there is no known cure, but is actually in remission as a result of an effective trial treatment. And he is a Ironman triathlete. And also, I guess, Mark, I've got to put this in as well. In doing Kona last year, raised $3.3 billion for primary purpose to build a model healthcare system for children. So, Mark, I hope you're not embarrassed by my, by my introduction, but thank you so much for joining us. I am a little embarrassed. Um, it's one of those things where I wish my mother could hear that. Um, she should never believe all that stuff. But it's great to talk to you, Chris. And just be clear, it, I raised $3.3 million, um, with Oh, did a, I with say billion? Ad. Sounded great, though. <laughs> no, no, $3.3 million. That's that. I, wow. I may have misheard. So look, um, that, that was probably the greatest privilege in my sporting life is to be able to use my interest in endurance sport to raise money to create a better future for for millions of kids um, now and now and um, and for generations to come. So how are you today? I am well. I am well. I am. Uh, yeah, it is continuing to snow here, so we're happy about that. But at the same time, I'd like to see a little sunshine too. But uh, but no, I'm doing really well. And I'm just excited about, about your journey. I'm, I, I want to get into the whole thing. I want to get into the Ironman. We'll talk about the cancer. We'll talk about what you're doing in the healthcare world. And what I think is really important, I saw that you wrote uh, somewhere, you know, while I'm well, I want to take the opportunity to have maximum impact on the evolution of healthcare toward value. Now, the clock's ticking for all of us, right? I mean, no matter who we are, it is ticking. Obviously, you're in a little bit different position in terms of in terms of the, the cancer and whether your clock might be clicking, ticking more quickly. How do you look at that in terms of your journey, in terms of your purpose, in terms of your mission, your impact, all of those things? And, and saying, yeah, I, I only have a limited amount of time. So, so Chris, it's a complicated question, and I, I take it in parts. And um, so I come from a Jewish faith th tradition. I'm not particularly observant. But um, as you may or may not know, most Jews don't believe in an afterlife. Um, they believe that legacy is created during your life and how you treat other people and how you treat society. And, um, and I probably that's probably the part of organized Judaism that has resonated most fully with me. The idea that um, we must, you know, we're obligated to within our own personal powers to make as much of a difference as we can while we can. Um, my clock's been ticking for a long time, actually, unfortunately. And I guess in some ways, fortunately, too. Um, so back in my 40s, um, I developed bladder cancer. Uh, young, young dad still, um, kids in elementary and middle school, high school. And um, it's a disease that um, 
Yeah, for me, it was surgically cured. That was a good thing. But it's a disease with a really lousy prognosis in a lot of ways. And it was interesting, not even into my 50s. Um, and at the beginning of the serious part of my leadership career to recognize that while I'm here, I have an opportunity to do things for other people that hopefully will be meaningful to them. On top of that, um, you know, after I spent my time in Abu Dhabi to develop multiple myeloma, blood cancer that you referenced in your introduction, that has no known cure. It's an incurable disease. If you Google it, it says an incurable blood cancer. It's the most common blood cancer uh, in the United States, and it accounts for 20% of blood cancer deaths. And um, to recognize that I ran on my way through all of the conventional chemotherapy, I failed a bone marrow transplant, and then right as the pandemic was kicking off, I needed to find a clinical trial to hopefully save my life. And I did. And so I, I found this CAR-T trial. By the way, it's based on some of similar mRNA technology to uh, the cancer, to the vaccines that were um, so effective during the pandemic. You know, here I am in remission and a lot of that desire to make a difference, to make good trouble, to make change that is helpful to all people is what drives me every day. And I may drive some of my colleagues a little crazy. And I know some of them are listening to our podcast right now. And hopefully they smile when I say that. I'm impatient. Um, I'm impatient because our health system's broken. I'm impatient because it's too expensive. It's hard to navigate. It's inequitable. And we can do more than we're doing. And I'm so privileged to have gone to work for General Catalyst from Intermountain, a great system that is devoted to the same principles I just mentioned, to General Catalyst, a firm that talks about responsible innovation, um, radical partner, radical collaboration, and health assurance to continue my work uh, to take another stepwise um, adventure into the healthcare unknown, and hopefully change the world for other people. What is that? You mentioned the Judaism. You, you mentioned personal as well in talking and a lot of these things get to be personal don't they i mean it's like we we affect a greater change when it gets to be personal there's a greater mission oftentimes i have an indignation about how my my fellow human beings are treated by the healthcare system. so it's more than personal it offends me that regular people can't afford the healthcare system it offends me that across the united states personal bankruptcy um uh, the most common cause is actually healthcare costs. It, it offends me that um, somebody with behavioral health issues might have to wait six months or a year to get seen and on and on, uh, because I know we can do better and um, we need to think outside of ourselves and on behalf of other human beings uh, in order to make those things better. When did that happen for you? When did, when did the indignation happen for you? Is it as you decided to go into medicine, your, your medicine, then you went into leadership in the medical field, but, and then, and then obviously being a patient yourself, when did the indignation happen? I've been a huge pain in the rear end ever since I was a kid. Um, and I'll tell you two stories. One is, I think I was like 14 or 15 and I was in Sunday school and there was a, there was a sort of a current events class. Uh, the topic of um, the West Bank came up. And I raised my hand and I asked the, the, the teacher, I said, how is it that we and oppressed people are oppressing others and denying them their civil rights? And um, she, she didn't know what to say. And, um, and I was pretty persistent and um, I got sent to the rabbi and um, he didn't, he, I said, well, look, you know, it's really complicated. I said, no, I understand it's complicated. Tell me how we and oppressed people could, um, could systematically deny other human beings their civil rights. And so I got suspended <laughs> from Sunday school. You got and suspended? I had to, really? Oh, I got suspended. And I, I had, because I think I was disrespectful. I'm sure I was disrespectful. Um, and I was supposed to like write an essay about how I was wrong and I wouldn't do it. And eventually they let me back in. Um, so that was like one, one sign that I was going to be a big pain in the butt going forward. And um, I had an epiphany when I was, I think, 12 or 13. Um, there was a huge snowstorm right around the time of my birthday. We, I grew up in Pittsburgh, really nice Midwestern city. Um, 
And um, a friend, I was given the book Roots by Alex Haley. I, there was this giant snowstorm and school was out for the whole week. And I read this entire book cover to cover uh, twice in that week. It was like, it spoke, it yeah. spoke to me. Um, and I was like, I realized that these people who, um, the people who I knew and people who um, I respected were having a completely different human experience than I was based on uh, their history. And um, it made me really attuned for whatever reason to try and understand other people's realities. Imperfectly, you know, with probably more ego than I should, et cetera. But it really like it, it, um, it changed me. Um, and I've carried that and that indignation that other people could be treated unfairly as I've always bugged me. And um, it followed me into medicine. And um, Mary Carol and I, my wife and I are both general, pedi- both pediatricians. She's a general pediatrician. I'm an intensivist. It's funny when, I, when somebody asked me during an, a residency interview, why do I want to go into pediatrics? My response was, I, I think not what they expected. I said, it's because <laughs> children are systematically disempowered and at, at, you know, at social risk. And I want to uh, both serve them medically and to advocate for them. And that's actually the truth. So I guess this has been how I've lived my life. Yeah. And so you're fighting for them both on a, on a social level and on a medical level as well. So, so, so you're sort of fighting kind of both, both sides of the brain kind of thing, both sides of the heart kind of, kind of deal for your patients. I always loved that. And I have always loved their stories. You know, I know you're a person who loves stories as well. I, I remember when I was a third year medical student, it was time to go and do a medicine rotation at the White River Junction VA uh, in Vermont. I didn't want to go. I didn't want to take care of a bunch of smelly old people. And um, now I'm a smelly old person uh, cared for by internal internists. And my senior resident, who seemed very wise and very old, he's probably like, you know, 27 years old at the time. Um, he said, look, if you go to the VA and really listen to these people and treat everyone like a hero and hear their stories, you're gonna have the best month of your life. And in fact, that was exactly what happened. So I see us each as a story and um, I, I try and see it, um, everybody as a whole human being. And um, I'm interested in, in helping out through healthcare around people's whole human experience. How does that work in terms of your time management? I mean, it's you you are a guy who, I mean, you're so intimately involved with your patients. So obviously you're- Well, I don't care your, for patients anymore, Chris. Right, so. no, no, no. I mean, back then, right, exactly. Back then, where you're where you're intimately involved with your patients, you know, and 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 so and and an advocate, you know. So so you become you're a doctor, but then then an advocate, then a then a leader. Is, is that an evolution of where you can be most effective? Is that how you've, how you've gone in that way? Or, you know, because in some ways it seems like as a doctor, the connection to the patient is, is, is the draw. Of all the things I miss at the current uh, and, and have missed since I came back from Abu Dhabi and I stopped seeing patients, it's that direct patient experience. There's nothing more beautiful Look, you're a person who loves sport. When, when a team of people functions seamlessly towards a, a greater, a greater mission, you know, coaches, trainers, athletes, all the support folks, it's it's like magic. And for me, the magic, the dance was the resuscitation of the critically ill child. I loved it. You know, everyone's around the bed doing their job together in unison thinking and acting as one organism in pursuit of helping another person, particularly a child is like gorgeous. I mean, it's amazing. So I, yes, miss that. Um, I also, my wife's nickname for me is Dr. What's Next. And she's like, at one point she said to me like, are you ever going to stop like saying yes to things? I said, no, I mean, I'm never going to stop. And so this I wish I could say like, I'm not a big believer in like career trajectory and stuff like that. Um, I'm a big believer in if there's a door, open it, peer through and have a bias towards walking through the door and seeing what's on the other side. And uh, every time you walk through, do the best darn job that you can do. And then good things happen Um, and treat people decently so that, 
you know, even when you have to do something they don't like, they know that it isn't personal and that you maintain relationships. That's it. Um, but <laughs> I, 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 and over time, one's role evolves. Um, and uh, I think that's just the natural order of things. Have you, you, you were saying earlier that, that you were, that I'm putting words in your mouth, that you were a bit of a rabble rouser as a kid. You weren't, you weren't really a rabble rouser, but you were, but you made these, these comments early on and you knew early on that you were looking for equality, that you were going to ask the difficult questions. Did some of the foundational stuff of who you are, did that come from being a kid? I was that, that, in in your message to IHC, you said, you know, continue, continue to be bold. And and you talk about that the that the real learning heart happens on the hard days, at the hard times. And you know, before before you did Kona, your daughter said, Well, you you do hard things. Are these things innate in you, or are they things that you have to remind yourself of? Well, if anything, I, I think it's innate, uh, Chris, but I think it's trainable also. I think um, it's really satisfying to take a young colleague and have her or him try something that is um, that's scary or difficult and have them succeed and see the confidence build that they can actually take on something that is bigger than they thought they could. Um, we're actually at a point in the work that I'm doing right now where we have a young colleague who's going to be doing a really important piece of business planning. And that sounds dry, but if if she gets this right, and she will, I'm confident she will, we're going to be able to do enormous good for immense um, numbers of people. And so I think she's nervous about it, but I also know she can do it. And the next hard thing I think will come yet more naturally to her. So yeah, no, this is just how I've always been wired. Um, and um I think that once you realize that these things are bigger than yourself, it's like raising money for a philanthropy. If you really believe, um, it's really easy to ask um, because you know you're going to, you, and regardless of what the answer is, um, you know that whatever you get, you're going to put to good use for others. Um, and so I think similarly, once you know that doing that hard thing isn't around self-aggrandizement, um, it's around making things fairer for others, uh, then you know, what do you have to lose? I, I remember as a young executive, I had just been put on the executive team at the Cleveland Clinic. We had a, a woman we wanted to recruit as a department chair. And um, we had tried to recruit her once before and she wouldn't come and join us um, because her wife couldn't get benefits. We weren't giving same-sex couples um, benefits at Cleveland Clinic at that point in time. And um, we tried to recruit her again. And as I said to my colleagues on the executive team, it's like, okay, so how is this going to work this time? We already know what the answer is going to be. I said, how can you like um, give away 10% of the talent, you know, or 5% or whatever the population is, just because we're not willing to recognize how two people love each other. And um, I was able to win on that um, because it was a business decision. And I think, um, and they didn't, they hated the idea of losing talent. They didn't want to lose this person who's a great leader. Um, but it also was a way to drive a wedge in. It was the thin edge of the wedge in terms of making social change. Um, and um, nobody died. In fact, everyone won. Um, we recruited her. We broke things open at a, at a good institution uh, for, for many hundreds of people. Um, and that felt really good. The doing difficult things, the question is, I mean, sometimes it's like you get better at, at doing difficult things. Is there a is there a reminder? You said that when you're raising money for philanthropy and you know that it's going to do a lot of good, it's really easy to ask for the money. When you were doing like in Ironman, so, I mean, you've done, I mean, going through med school is a bit of a slog, as I understand. I've not done it. Uh, going through cancer twice, I'd imagine, is a bit of a slog. Uh, going through Ironman is is a bit of a slog. I mean, certainly one that you sign up for, but but it's a bit of a slog. And I noticed when you did Kona last year that you wrote what forty five the the birthdays of forty five people on your 
on your forearm people people yeah. who had who had um connected with cancer right who had died from cancer what is the story is there a story that you tell because i looked at I, I looked at your results well the thing is there, there are a couple of different things like there there will be one man and one woman who win that race but it's also the race is the battle with yourself and you won that battle but what i looked at was at the end so what is this 2.4 mile swim 112 mile bike ride and then you do a marathon at the end and your marathon you did in 659 if i'm if i'm right there i think yeah, I, I i don't remember the time all i know is i finished at about 1540 was i think the finish time 50, exactly and and so that translates into a 16 like 16 minute miles which what i'm trying to wonder is how do you wrap your mind around it cuz you are exhausted the tank is 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 empty and and it probably doesn't feel like you're getting all that much closer how do you continue to persevere as you as you feel like you're not necessarily getting all that much closer i think there's um i think there's a couple of of questions here the first is the um why do hard things? Um, and I think the answers are personal growth and it is thrilling um, to actually try things that you might fail at. Um, thrilling. Now, you got to be really careful. There's a difference between being reckless, uh, trying to find your limits, right? The, the other point is, um, you know, that other point, how do you get through the really hard times? Things like cancer, you know, you don't, you don't actually have a choice. I didn't sign up for that. There is um, an ability that some people have better than others to get up every morning and believe that the next day is going to be better um, and that there's still hope. And those are the people who aren't victims. Those are people who have agency. They actually have some sense of control in their life. And um, I'm very fortunate that I've always been one of those people. Um, I brought a bike to the bone marrow transplant unit. I had a treadmill in my room when I was in a transplant unit for CAR T therapy. Um, even, even when I was so sick that I couldn't sit on my bike for even five minutes, I'd roll around on the floor and pretend I was doing yoga because I thought that would be, be like one more punch in the nose towards cancer to try and keep away from that. Doing an Ironman um, after those things, as far as I know, there's not a transplant patient who's done, um, a bone marrow transplant patient who's done Ironman. I'm certain there's nobody who's had CAR T therapy. Um, it destroyed my body. Um, and three years ago, I was really weak and I had lost all my muscle and I started from zero. And so my 1540 um, Ironman, which was my slowest one by almost three hours, um, actually over three hours, um, uh, was an accomplishment because I'd never thought I could do it. Um, and to be out there on um, the Queen K in the middle of the night, um, hot, tired, tank is empty. I think you, you, you discover that your limits are just so much greater than you ever anticipated it's probably like somebody experiences when they're going through buds for seal training it's not your body right your body's broken down um it's you dig deep and you find um strength in your soul to to keep moving forward hopefully for a higher purpose and um anyhow it that's that's thrilling in a good way um it's also daunting um but that they go together. Look, man, um, why, why did you, um, why did you want Olympic gold medals? Cause it was easy. No, it's the same thing. No. I mean, this is why I'm relishing in this. I love the, no. I love the idea of, because of it's being, hard. Yeah, no, it is. It is. And we choose things that are hard. It's funny. I've, I've, I have been working off and on, on my, uh, on my memoir. And in some ways I have, I have looked at the, looked at the title and said, you know, maybe it could be, why do I, why do I do things the hard way? And, and in some ways there, you know, you choose the hard thing, you choose the harder way oftentimes because you learn more 
about yourself, I think. I mean, you reveal more, but it's also, you know, that question of, of, of how do we keep going? You talked about Navy SEALs and I was reading something at one point and they said the success of Navy, Navy SEALs is often, especially going through buds is, it is, why am I doing this? What's the story that I tell myself when it gets really difficult to keep going? And maybe it's just that one step. It's just one step. And it's incomprehensible at that moment, isn't it? The the one step that you take is just all that you can understand. But you have no idea how that one step is going to bring you wherever you want to go, other than it's one step closer. One step closer. Look, uh, and I know you know this as an elite athlete. Um there are different coping strategies during um, during endurance sport. There's associative um, coping, where you're constantly monitoring how your body's doing. Am I upright? How is my stride? What is my cadence? You know, whatever it might be. How's my breathing? Am I hydrated enough? Have I taken nourishment? And then there's the dissociative that people actually tend to be the non-elites who it's like um, I'm going to imagine I'm on a beach somewhere, or you know. They like, try and take their mind as far away from it as possible. And I think there's a reason why the um, people who are extremely high performing, um, they're intentional, right? Um, and whether it's in business, whether it's relationships, uh, your marriage, your kids, your friends, your sports, your hobbies, um, intentionality wins the day every time over a dissociation. It is. And it's interesting the journey you go on too, right? Because my, the very first marathon that I ever did, I remember sort of somewhere between 20 and 26 getting bored. I, I just got bored. It was, I, I'm still doing this. I'm still going. Okay. Well, I guess I will continue going because I'm supposed to get to the end, but my mind had drifted and lost that intentionality that you were talking about. And, and trying to bring it back. And that's where I would imagine just writing those dates on your forearm, especially I would imagine as you're on the bike ride, if they're on your forearm. I was like, looking at them for <laughs> five and a half hours. Yeah. You're, you're right there because it also, I mean, this is back to some of what you were saying before that if you're raising money for a philanthropy, it's a whole lot easier to raise money for a great cause. If you believe in it, but it's also the difference sometimes in sport as well is the idea of you're not necessarily doing it for yourself. That when you look down at your forearm, you're doing it for the legacy of those other people, for the memory of those other people. And there's a greater strength that comes from that, I think. And it's it to me, it's just an interesting association. And obviously, you have to learn from one to bring it to the other, I would imagine, too. Right. It's all intertwined. It is intertwined. And I think it's complicated, Chris. So um, yes, I, th there was a noble purpose associated with doing this. Um, but I, I don't know about you, but anytime I do something that, um, that smacks of volunteerism, I always feel a little guilty because um, I feel like I get more out of it myself than I could possibly ever give to another person. Mm -hmm. And I was just talking with my wife about this the other night over dinner. She just got, she does a lot of international medicine. She just got back from Guatemala uh, about a week and a half ago and had a great experience and made a huge impact. And she's like, uh, I think I had more fun and got more out of it than all the patients I saw. And um, so I think it's a common feeling. So there's, um, there's like a, yes, you're giving, you're also hopefully growing too as a human being. And there's nothing wrong with there's, in fact, that's actually what we're meant to do. I, I don't understand people who stop wanting to push the limits in some sphere of their life. Can I be a better father? Can I be a better husband? Can I be a better friend? Can I be a better doctor? Can I be a better athlete? Can I be a better journalist? You know, whatever it might be. I, I suspect that's actually why people get to the end of careers and stop doing things. And I think they wither physically and mentally and sometimes die. So I think, I, I think, yeah, I mean, that's the scariest part, I think in some ways of retirement, right. Is, is losing that sense of purpose, which is the thing that is probably so important for us. And 
talking about your wife, I was looking through your LinkedIn and saw her taking, listening to the, to the lungs of a doll before she was listening to the lungs <laughs> of a patient, which was just. Is that the sweetest picture? It is awesome. It yeah. Really it's is. a great photo. But it's also, we, we have to remember, you know, cause I think a part of it is communicating things too. Like I often tell people that the most powerful period of time in my life was the period of time immediately after my accident, when I was in the hospital after breaking my back, because my life became black and white. Something would help me get better and something wouldn't. And that extended to my thoughts and my emotions, which really ultimately were the only things that I could control because I couldn't, I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't do anything else, but I, I had a choice about how I wanted to approach my day, how I wanted to approach what was going on, which I, I, I am not as proactive about that during my regular life, you know, my, my life after that. And so I have to remember that, hey, this is part of what made me really powerful. And we have to learn these things so that then we can also contribute them to other people. So, so Chris, do you know, um, that makes 100% sense. Do you know the work of Seligman, the psychologist from, from University of Martin so Seligman, you're yeah, sure. Yeah. So, so you're describing you had an internal locus of control. Okay, so here you are, you've had this catastrophic accident that's changed your life. Um, and you recalibrated as quickly as you could. And you said, okay, all this stuff is out of my control. If, if that takes over, I'm a victim. Um, instead, you found the areas that you could control, even though they were limited at the time. And you said you became a leader, not a victim. And um, you know, I've often said leaders can't be victims. Victims can't be leaders, right? Um, and um, you demonstrated enormous leadership by having internal locus control and maintaining your agent. And I think that is the key for folks as they think about their as, as they think about their lives. Um, that's really important. You know, do I have agency, even when it's denied me? Can I create agency? Um, that's powerful, right? And it's also part of your efforts is to is to help people gain that agency as well, right? Um, in their health and in um, and through leadership, you know this this book that I I just released, um, Possibility Unleashed. That's one of the major theses of the book is um, you know how do I help as a leader the people work with me uh, have an environment where they can fully express um, their capabilities and um, and have agency and make a difference and then hopefully do that for the next person. I would imagine that that has been entirely captivating for you i mean the I idea of of helping people <laughs> to gain to gain agency i mean it's just is that something that you know you said you can't plan a career a career path is, is that anything that you imagine that you would that you would that you would indulge in and and that you would teach and lead in as you started well i still am not 100 sure that people should listen to me but um, um, it gives me great pleasure. Um, you know, if, if in fact every person's a story, I love um, hearing their stories. Um, and I love trying to help them think through how they can serve their highest and best purpose. Some people would probably say I'm relatively indiscriminate who I'll work with. Um, you know, there are folks who've counseled me like, you know, do you really want to spend time with that person? That's really kind of an entry level person. And my answer is usually, yes, I do want to, because I find them fascinating. And um, if we can help people towards the beginning of their career, um, I, I think it really makes a big difference. Uh, there's a young man I met yesterday who um, um, really accomplished guy, um, an Ironman triathlete himself. Uh, just finished um, his stint in the um, in the Air Force. He um, worked on an AC-130 gunship in support of um, special operations troops uh, all over all kinds of unpleasant places. And um, he's thinking about what's next in his life. And we sort of talked through what some of his interests were and how he might be able to make good use of them. So he's a young man. Um, 
He's not like a senior exec. He's not like running a giant corporation. Um, I find his life to be every bit as valuable as the people who are kind of big shots, at least in their own minds. And uh, I've always liked that sort of egalitarian approach to things. That's also a place where you could have a huge impact. Transitions are are such a can be such a challenge. I mean, certainly even for somebody who is a triathlete who has done all of these amazing things in the military and being so much in the moment. And it sounds like you you've talked about a lot about that a lot of that idea of being in the moment, being in the moment with people. But in that's in all there of, is. What's that? So. The moment is all there is, Chris. You can't do anything about the yesterday, right? Right. Tomorrow's not promised. It's all in the moment. Exactly. But even not the the transition can be a scary place of wondering if you'll ever get back to that moment. That moment when that's fair. When you were talking about the, the pediatric care and having a whole team working together and everybody's doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing, and and, and you're you as a team. Are, are successful that that is so captivating and it's the moment you want to get back to and you want to get back to and 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 thinking okay how do I how do I take my passion how do I take my skills and and point them in the right direction to be able to be part of that moment so it's so cool that you are helping and mentoring this guy because you don't necessarily have all the all the right answers at the right time so it's when looking at medicine, when looking at, at your at your role, it really is a holistic view of the person, though, too, isn't it? That you look at it, the health of the person. So it it, it actually has to be, Chris. So this um, idea of value based care or health assurance is really around. Um, you know, here, here I'm a pediatric intensivist. My whole professional life for 20 years was around um, very aggressive interventions to save somebody's life who is on the edge. Um, and um, the really important question is that kid with the asthma attack who I'm intubating, um, what triggered that asthma attack? Oh, wait, there were dust mites in the home and the kid's got a terrible dust mite allergy. Oh, and they couldn't afford to have the dust mites abated or... They didn't have the money to fill their inhaler. And so here I'm doing this like heroic with quotes around it um, thing to save this kid's life. When in fact, um, this never should have happened in the first place. So I've come over the years to recognize that to the extent that we can minimize those heroic interventions and um, by keeping people well is the right way to take care of them. And um, you know, the things that make the biggest difference are what we call social determinants of health. It's, do you have a roof over your head? Do you have transportation? Do you have a job? Do you have food in your cupboard? Do you have physical security, um, et cetera? I mean, it's really the basics. And the beautiful thing is that if we can address those, people's health overall improves. They use less healthcare, saves money, which can be applied to other things like education. Um, and it's a virtuous loop. Um, but that's not the way healthcare in the United States is set up. It's volume driven, it's intervention driven. Um, and I'd like to change that. And that's what I've spent the last really five or six years thinking about nothing, um, but that, and my time at general catalyst will be focusing on that as well. Yeah. And moving, moving upstream and, and to me, it, uh, the, the things that it's, it's funny, I have a little, little, like, uh, uh, note card that I put on my on my wall and two of the things that that seem like they uh, are appropriate here are the idea of urgency uh, of doing it quickly but also simplicity and, and and trying to achieve that sense of simplicity I mean you talk about it as just simple having a roof over your ha head having food and and that can prevent so much and it seems so it seems so obvious why why can the obvious be be so challenging um it's because the incentives aren't aligned well um and um i think that's one of the challenges and opportunities is how do you at scale begin to change change incentives um so one of the things that i'm really proud of that we um 
that did at Intermountain. And I did it with um, Dan Lillianquist, who's the chief strategy officer there, is to start this not-for-profit generic drug company called Civic Rx that Dan was really the mastermind of. And he's the chairman of that company. And I played a, a role in enabling him to get this work done. Gosh, um, it makes sense that um, the generic drugs should be pennies per dose because that's what they're meant to be. But in fact, there were all kinds of complicated um, barriers around people who are making money selling generic drugs at, at high cost. And they had cornered the market on certain drugs and they were um, running those running the costs up and they were bankrupting people with, with diseases who could no longer afford their medicine. Again, we were offended, we're indignant, um, and we pushed forward, but all those folks fought back um, and um, getting the incentives aligned finally um, has largely happened. And you can see some of the evidence of that in the news these days with like price caps on insulin, et cetera. But boy, it was hard. Um, so some of this stuff makes sense, but let me tell you, every time we try and change things to keep people out of the hospitals, um, there are groups that are gonna want them right back there in the, in the hospital beds because their economics depend on it. Um, but that's, um, that's the exciting, interesting part of this. And you're, you're juggling so much because there's so many stakeholders who aren't necessarily in agreement and trying to trying to find a way. I mean, this is the world in general, right? I mean, you started off talking about some of the some of the race and equity inequalities and things like that. That it that it's a matter of. I mean, it's 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 interesting in in preparing for this, Mark. I felt like I felt like there's there, there there's a there's a point that that where you meet where all of your we're we're being a doctor, we're being a leader, we're being a triathlete, we're being a a cancer a, a cancer patient uh, is all is all kind of meeting together and being a human being is all kind of meeting together in in a sense and I and I'm not sure exactly that I've uh, that I've found that I suspect you have um, you know you'll have to look I don't think any of us ever feel like we're there um, uh, I certainly don't uh, my work's not done it'll never be done. But um, I think finding ways to take these complex problems and, um, and frame them in ways that are apolitical uh, for the most part um, is, is very helpful. That's the other thesis of this book. In addition to unleashing people's talents, it's to find middle ground um, that is not a compromise, but it is a, less inflammatory way to talk about things. And I'll, I'll give you an example from the book. Um, so we had this really brilliant young woman at Intermountain who was, um, uh, she had gotten a degree at the Kennedy School. She was a progressive left-wing liberal person politically. And she had a deep interest in um, gun violence. And she came out to Utah, to Intermountain, to work on our gun violence problem with us. And to her credit, she created a relationship with the chief gun lobbyist for the NRA um, in this part of the world. Somebody whose politics could not have been more diametrically opposed, uh, you know, opposed to hers. They talked together. Um, he actually took her shooting and she found out it was really fun, which it is. And, um, uh, what they discovered is, although their politics were different, neither of them wanted a teenager to kill herself or himself with a handgun. And they devised very effective strategies to try and reduce uh, handgun deaths by suicide. That is taking a problem, right, um, and depoliticizing it and finding common ground and making a difference. And I think to the extent that all of us can do that in our lives and social media sure makes it hard, algorithm driven news definitely makes it hard. We got to figure out how to come out of our fighting corners and link arms and address problems in more holistic fashion. It's it, it, yes, I am with you 
100%. I mean, our our initiatives with One Revolution are really defined what we what we share as opposed to to calling attention to all of our differences and and it is it is a human path that we have to that we have to follow in order to be successful it's funny that you mentioned that you mentioned social media because you are you are pretty effective in in social media you you wear a lot of hats you you're doing a lot of, i i think the big question for me is how are you able to do all of what you do? Because it, you know, you have great heartfelt posts, particularly on LinkedIn, where where you're 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 connecting with a population. I find oftentimes the social media connection can be can be a real challenge, and possibly it is because of this contentious nature or contentious potential of of social media. How do you do it? as well as you do it because you seem like you have a great honest voice well thanks um what i don't do is um i don't try and solve disagreements on um social media i think it's impossible i think it's inflammatory and i think it's uh, bad for society to be honest um so i i i hope my voice my voice is authentic you know, it, it's a real voice, um, whether you like it or not. And some people like it and some people don't. Um, and the voice is about, um, you know, how we can try and lead a high integrity, authentic life and have some fun. Um, and, um, but when, you know, there was a, there was a time when um, I posted something gosh, it was probably three or four years ago around health equity and a really negative, ugly um, response popped up. And <laughs> before I talked to my social media partner, I quick, I wrote a horrible, like rough, you know, shredding this person who was in my estimation, a not very smart or good person. And I set off a brush fire that was completely unproductive and really unpleasant. And um, I learned my lesson. It's sort of like, you know, in leadership, it's totally cool to praise people in public. In fact, it's a good thing. But if you need to correct them, you should do it privately um, um, for, for all the same reasons. So thank you for the nice compliment. Um, I, Hopefully this stuff is not Pollyanna-ish um, and it's meant to be a force for good. Um, and uh, the tough stuff, the disagreements get worked out offline. I think that sounds like a great idea. So I followed you. As and stay you were... off Twitter because it's the unhappiest place on earth, I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Are people angry on that, on that um, social media site? I mean, it's unbelievable. It might be part of the intention. I mean, the intention that a lot of people are bringing. So as you prepared for Kona, I followed you and you were getting up at three o'clock in the morning to get your workouts in and doing, doing a variety of things. And let me just go through a couple of your, couple of the stats that I picked up from your social media that, uh, that as you're approaching Kona, 750 miles of running slash hiking, 3,050 miles of, of biking, 374,800 yards of swimming, 145 strength sessions, uh, 602 hours of training time, 602 hours of training time. You also, in a separate one, you said that you had, uh, I think it was 110,000 feet of elevation gain, which I did a little bit of math, which turns into about 21 miles of elevation gain, which is, depending upon how you do your math, a third or a half the way to space. So I don't know if you were trying to get to space, but you were you were close. But do you still get up early in the morning to do those training sessions? Is that to prepare for an event or has that become part of the, the culture of who you are as a person? So it's always been who I've been. Um, so I think I've got really bad unpharmacologically treated ADHD and um, I I definitely do. So let's not say probably. Um, and I, I think I, I started to train in the morning at age 13, um, lifting, running, that kind of stuff. 
And I've always done that. Um, and I think it takes the edge off a little bit um, and allows me to be a focused person. I think as I've gotten older, um, um, I've realized that um, movement is my meditation. And, um, and there's something about the rhythmic nature of endurance sport that is like the breathing associated with meditating, et cetera. And, um, and I love living where I love here in Utah because I, I'm able to connect even more easily with nature than I did when I lived in the Midwest. And so between the movement of sport and um, being present in the physical environment, I think it's really good for my um, holistic humanity. And so it's not a, that's like, there's no virtue signal <laughs> getting up before dawn and going to the pool and hopping in when it's cold and cold outside. Um, it's just how I live my life. Um, so I, it works for me. I'm not saying other people should do that. Uh, it's been interesting. Um, I got enough durability that I was able to get Kona done. Um, I had run a pretty good half Ironman um, earlier in the season. Um, in Oceanside, I'm going again in two weeks. I'm going to see if I can go a bit faster this year. And the goal for this year is probably less volume, but try and get some speed back, which, you know, post all the medical stuff. And now at age 59, we'll see if I can get any speed back, but um, it'd be kind of fun to try. It's always the question as we get older, isn't it? Can we can <laughs> oh we gosh. find a way to continue to get better, even if it's just a little bit better or recapture a little bit of that youth, the joy of youth? And Mark, I just, I love your journey. I love what you're doing. Uh, people obviously can follow you on on LinkedIn, right? Is that the best place for well, people to that's follow That's probably you? the best place. Um, yeah. I have a, a small Insta presence, but it's really just for family and friends, you know, that, that kind of stuff. But I think it's, um, LinkedIn is probably the best forum. And then um, I think we're really looking forward to um, being able to talk about this company that we're standing up um, in a very fulsome way in the not distant future. Um, what I can promise you is it will drive health equity, it'll drive affordability, it'll drive access, it'll help health systems be more resilient in the face of potential commoditization by big tech, um, it will be revolutionary in all the right ways. Um, and uh, stay tuned. Well, I imagine that's getting you up in the morning as well. So absolutely love the people I'm working with and love the project that we're working on. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate you all, all your time and everything you're doing to make our world a better place. And and more equitable and enjoyable and healthier for all of us. Thanks, Chris. What a pleasure. Yeah. And thank you to all of you for tuning in. Really appreciate it. The greatest gift you can give us is to tell your friends. Tell your friends to like us, to follow us. Please subscribe, and we will continue to bring you great content. I look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to Chris Whitehall Living It for more stories on the adaptive community, the Paralympics, artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, experts in the experience of being human. Also follow us on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, and Instagram. I look forward to seeing you next week.